Matthew 16, beginning at verse 1. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came up and testing him, asked him to show them a sign from heaven. But he answered and said to them, When it is evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning there will be a storm today, for the sky is red and threatening. Do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky, but cannot discern the signs of the times? An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and a sign will not be given it except the sign of Jonah. Then he left them and went away. And the disciples came to the other side and had forgotten to take bread. And Jesus said to them, Watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began to discuss among themselves, saying, It is because we took no bread? But Jesus, aware of this, said, You men of little faith, why do you discuss among yourselves that you have no bread? Do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves of the five thousand and how many baskets you took up, or the seven loaves of the four thousand and how many large baskets you took up? How is it that you do not understand that I did not speak to you concerning bread? But beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not say to beware of the leaven of bread, but the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. We've seen that Jesus has had an encounter with opposition. In chapter 15, we just saw that he had opposition with the Pharisees and the scribes who teamed up against him. We need to understand, as we've mentioned, why would anybody be opposing the Lord of glory, the Messiah, uh, the most loving man that's ever lived, the, the miracle worker, the one who would heal people of their terrible diseases, uh, cast out demons and all the sorts like this. Why would people oppose him? Well, it's because since the fall, it was ordained to be so. With the fall of man, <clears throat> which was spawned by the uh, the, the, the deceitful work of the evil one, Satan. We see there that God said that there would be a conflict in history between the seed of the woman and the seed of the, ser of the serpent. We know from Scripture that the seed of the woman was the promise of the Messiah. The seed of the serpent is none other than the devil and all those who belong to him. And there has always been this conflict, and there will be a, uh, this conflict throughout human history. And what Jesus is doing after his resurrection is progressively uh, bringing down his enemies. So <clears throat> the conflicts with Jesus have been over uh, authority. What constitutes authority? What, what is uh one's governing uh, regulations that we are to live by. Uh, it has to do over the condition of the heart, the nature of the heart. It has to do with the nature of doctrine. What doctrine are we supposed to, to believe in? Well, we're told in scriptures in 2 Corinthians 11 that Satan comes as an angel of light. And there in that text, when he when when Paul was saying that 
the devil comes as an angel of light, he's talking about deceitful workers, false teachers, namely the Judaizers who were teaching that you had to be submit to the law of Moses in order to be saved. That's who he's referencing. Now, it's not just true of that false doctrine, but any false doctrine and the one behind all false doctrine is always the devil. And so Jesus has dealt with the scribes. He's dealt with the Pharisees. Here he's dealing with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now whether it's an emphasis on legalism, which is work salvation, that's what legalism is, or if it's an emphasis on human tradition, like we saw in the previous chapter, where they were telling, uh, where the Pharisees and scribes were rebuking Jesus for not teaching his disciples to wash their hair, hands ceremonially, uh, that, as Jesus says, was wrong because it's elevating human tradition. That wasn't even the law of God to a position of authority. So whether it's an emphasis on human tradition that invalidates the word of God, or it's a denial of biblical truths, such as the resurrection and life after death. By the way, that was the, if we're going to see, that was the leaven of the Sadducees, that they were teaching that there was no life after death. There was no resurrection of the dead at all. There was no judgment day. That's what the Sadducees taught. Now, though Satan is a defeated foe, as the scripture says, and though he is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, that is, whom he may spiritually destroy. Now we must not forget that Satan Satan seeks to inculcate a philosophy of the world which is in opposition to God. So let's take a look at the text. Turn over to Colossians chapter Colossians chapter two uh, verses six through eight. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and establishing your faith, just as you were instructed, and overflowing with gratitude. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. So, it will always come down to, are we going to be instructed by a, a biblical philosophy that is uh, in terms of the Word of God, or are we going to hold to tradition of men? Now, those are always the two choices. Sadly, one of the tactics today uh, of the evil one is um, is always to try to wreak havoc in, in the church, the visible church. And 
he, among even evangelicals, uh, he will come in and he will uh, seek to have them disagree on various things. One of the things that you probably have heard, some say that there's this division between a doctrine and application so as to drive a wedge between those two things. Uh, there's, no, there's no problem with it. There's no problem with doctrine and application. Every, uh, all that doctrine is, is biblical truth. And every biblical truth, we've said on numerous occasions, has its proper application. So, <clears throat> doctrine is never intended to be just intellectual. It was always intended to reach the heart. The purpose of biblical truth is that our hearts may be uh, captivated by the Word of God. You see, the problem, uh, the reason that Jesus gave his scathing rebuke of the Pharisees and the scribes, and now the Pharisees and the Sadducees, is because they were manifesting what Isaiah had always prophesied about them, that with their lips they profess allegiance to God, but their heart is far from God. So, for example, the Pharisees and the scribes, they manifested a heart that wasn't captivated by the word of God because they were teaching the people convenient ways of, of people to um, have uh, not meet the needs of their parents. So, in chapter 15, the Pharisees have teamed up with the scribes to oppose Jesus. Now, as we see in Matthew 16 here, normally these two groups, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, are fighting amongst each other. They would normally have debates. We see that later on with Paul uh, when he's before uh, the governor Felix and others, when he's uh, on trial, the Pharisees and the scribes will get into a fight amongst themselves. And then, which is quite humorous, when it all was centering in on Paul. And so the Pharisees and the scribes, I mean the, the Sadducees, had serious doctrinal differences but when it came to Jesus they were all united against Jesus you know that's not unusual you have some people that just hate one another but you find someone they hate more like Jesus then they're all friends now they, they got a common foe and the Pharisees and the Sadducees though they really couldn't stand each other and opposed each other the greater foe was Jesus believe it or not that's incredible isn't it and so what we see here, we're told in Matthew 16 that the Pharisees and the scribes, they come testing Jesus. And how did they test him? They demanded a sign from heaven, from Jesus. They demanded a sign. Now keep in mind, this is all a sham. They had no real desire. It doesn't matter. Jesus never would have satisfied them no matter what he said they weren't uh, they weren't really interested in a sign 
All they were interested in is trying to trap Jesus. That's what they were doing. In their minds, it was all about discrediting Jesus before the people. Signs? Well, think about it. They had signs all around them. Every miracle that Jesus performed was a sign in their midst. For example, turn back to Matthew 11. And take a look at verses 3 through 6. Now this was when John the Baptist sent his, his disciples to Jesus to ask him the question, were to have his disciples, and I believe again when we preach through this, it was for the benefit of his disciples to hear Jesus say this. Are you the Messiah? Are you the expected one? Or are you to expect another? So how did Jesus respond to that? Well, look what he said in verse 4 and following. Go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the gospel preached to them. In other words, everything that Jesus said to them here, he said was a sign. All of these activities of Jesus in his whole healing ministry was a sign proving to those in Israel, I'm the Messiah, I'm the expected one, I'm the great prophet. So what was their problem? They wanted a sign of their own choosing, of their own making. They wanted a sign that would uh, satisfy the curious mind. But it was more of an entertainment, but it was never going to be something that they would ever accept at all. Uh, And we need to understand that the proofs the proofs of God's divine revelation are God's choosing, not man's. Not the foolish fancies of men. God never submits to, the, to those kinds of inquiries. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees were not interested in being taught by Jesus anything. All they were interested in is to find a way to trap him. So if Jesus were going to perform some amazing signs from heaven, you know, here's the thing. Let's suppose Jesus had capitulated to them. All they would have done would say, well, that's by the power of the devil, the Isabel. After all, do you remember what happened uh, that's recorded several uh, chapters before? Uh, in, in, in Matthew chapter 12, you remember when uh, a man was brought to Jesus who was demon possessed verse 22 of Matthew 12 then they were brought to him a demon possessed man who was blind and dumb and he healed him so that the dumb man spoke and saw and all the multitudes they were amazed and said this man he can't be the son of David can he now mind you to be the son of David what they meant and the masses understood that the Messiah was promised to come through the line of David. And what they said is, could this man, Jesus, actually be 
the promised Messiah, the son of David. Really? Could he be? So they were seriously wondering about this. But is that what the Pharisees thought? No, look what verse 24 says. The Pharisees heard it. This man casts out demons only by the power of the, only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. Of course, Jesus said to them how stupid that was. Why would Satan want to cast out Satan? Makes no sense. See, even if Jesus had given a sign from heaven that they, the Pharisees and the Sadducees had demanded, it would have made no difference because they didn't care. That's not what they were there for. They really didn't want to have a sign. Uh, from God. So now, but then, if Jesus didn't produce a sign, if he didn't agree to do with it, what are they going to say? Hey, Moses gave signs. Joshua gave a sign, and the sun stopped at his command. Elijah gave signs from heaven. I mean, fire came down and consumed the sacrifice. Uh, when they're at Mount Carmel. So if Jesus didn't do a sign, they say, you're not much of a guy. I mean, you can't do it. You're not even as much as all these prophets. So you see, it was a no-win situation from a human perspective for Jesus. But Jesus understood it all along. Jesus knew they didn't have any serious inquiry. That's not what they were there for. It was all about trapping Jesus. Now the Pharisees, here's the thing. Jesus, as always, saw through their activity. And basically what he is saying is, you are no different than the unbelievers in the wilderness among Israel. Where, by the way, it's recorded in Numbers chapter 21, uh, verse 5. I mean, we don't need to turn there. Let me just reference the passage. Remember, Israel had come out of Egypt. They're passing through the wilderness uh, where there is not, where the uh, water is scarce, where food is scarce. And they're wondering, what what can we eat? I mean, God's promised to take them to the promised land when it's flowing with milk and honey. Well, we're not in the promised land yet. So what are we going to do, Moses? We're hungry. We're thirsty, Moses. So what does God do? He sends this incredible, a miracle and a sign from heaven. The manna would come down, and they would just go out and pick it up every morning. This sweet bread. And God fed them miraculously in the wilderness. But we see in Numbers 21, verse 5, Israel began to complain to Moses, and this was a big mistake for them to have done so. Here's what they said. They said, Moses... Through you, God has led us out of Egypt into this wilderness to die. For there is no food or water. That's what the text says. There's no food or water. And then they said, oh really? 
I mean, they, they didn't say that. But they said, we loathe this stuff, this bread. And they said, and they were referencing the manna from heaven, that they were loathing. And they had the audacity to say, there's no food. And God's saying, oh, there's no food? What do you call the manna? What do you call this sign from heaven of giving you manna? What do you call that if that's not food? And it was because of that that God says, oh, you unappreciative, you murmuring uh, group. And he sent the poisonous snake to bite them. And they had to be delivered miraculously out of that. And so the point here is, Jesus is saying, an evil, unbelieving generation seeks signs. You are no different than your ancestors who complained about the manna and wanted a sign from heaven when God had already given you a sign. The sign that God gave Israel in the wilderness was his faithfulness, right? It was his faithfulness. But it was met with opposition. You know, here's, here's the truth that we learn. When men's hearts are in bondage to sin, nothing will ever change their mind. Nothing will ever help. Nothing. No miracle, no sign will change things. So even today when people say, and we're not living in an age where of miracles. Mind you, let me tell you this, throughout biblical history, we are of the mindset that miracles were some commonplace thing throughout the history of, of Israel. That's not true. There were uh, miracles even in what we refer to as biblical times came in sporadic uh, instances. There would be centuries that went by when there was no miracle. Between the age of Elijah and those miracles and the coming of Christ, four or five hundred years elapsed and there were no miracles. And then all of a sudden, with the coming of John the Baptist and with Jesus, of course, we have the miracles returning. To show you that miracles don't change anything when people's hearts are not right with God. Turn with me to Luke chapter 16. Look at Luke 16. We're going to begin reading at verse 19 through verse 31. Now there was a certain rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, Gaily living in splendor every day. And a certain poor man named Lazarus was laid uh, at his gate covered with sores. And longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. And I came about that the poor man died and he was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. And in hell he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. 
And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and, and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus bad things, but now he's living, uh, he's being comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you there's a great chasm fixed in order that those who wish to come over from here to you may not be able and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may warn them that they also, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to them, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. I cannot stress to you how important that whole section is. The man in hell begging someone to go and warn his brothers. And you know what the response was? They have the word of God. They have Moses. Let them listen to Moses. And his response, remember, was, no, if have someone rise from the dead, perform a sign in heaven, a miracle, that will convince them. What did he say? No, that won't even convince them. If they have Moses, if they have the word of God and they don't believe it, neither will they be convinced if someone rises from the dead. You know, brethren, that's the age in which we're living. We have the word of God. When people say, well, I'm not going to believe unless God were to do something amazing. Even if God were to do it, it wouldn't change anything because you have a darkened heart. And besides, God's not going to cater to you and your sinful desires and try to entertain you with something. No, you can't come to God on your terms. You've got to come to God and Jesus on Jesus' terms. You have the Scriptures. So Jesus rebuked the Pharisees and the Sadducees for demanding a sign. They can read certain signs, he says, but they can't read the signs of the times. Now, you've probably heard this rhyme. Red sky at morning, sailors delight, or sailors take warning. Red sky at night, sailors delight. You've heard that rhyme. Guess where the origin of that came from? Right here in the bottom. That's where it came from, originally. I mean, that's what Jesus said. He answered and said to them, When it is evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning there will be a storm today, for the sky is red and threatening. 
So what Jesus was saying here, he said, you're basically correct in your, your understanding of weather forecasting for the five. You know, by the way, there is a scientific basis for that. If the morning sky was red, dealing in, the, in that geographical area of Israel, if the morning sky was red, the winds coming from the west, the Mediterranean, at night had driven vapors across the, the, the countryside so that the sky was red, this meant that a storm was approaching. The red color is produced by a reflection of light off of particles. And so that's why the sky is red. And that's why if it's red in the morning, a storm is coming. The converse of that is true if, the, if it's red at night. Uh, it's going to be fair weather. Jesus is saying, look, you can forecast the weather but you don't understand the signs of the times? In other words, Jesus is saying, you cannot even see that the kingdom of God has come upon you. You can't see that the Messiah has come. Jesus' generation was evil and adulterous, just like their ancestors in the wilderness who, while miracles were their daily bread, what did they say? Is the Lord among us? Is He going to feed us? When there was already a sign among them, the manna. By adulterous, let me mention this, when Jesus referred to them as an adulterous generation, Jesus obviously speaking spiritually adulterous, God repeatedly is reviewed in the Old Testament as Israel's husband. A godly husband is faithful to his wife. A godly husband provides for his wife. A godly husband protects his wife. Did not God, as a spiritual husband to Israel, provide and protect Israel? Of course he did. So when Israel denied the obvious demonstration of God's faithfulness. What were they doing? And when they denied that and were asking for there to be some sign, what they were doing was committing spiritual adultery by calling into question and by acting unfaithful to their husband, Jehovah. So, what Jesus is saying, O oh, Pharisees and Sadducees, can you who can forecast the weather, you are so spiritually unhealthy that you can't discern the signs of the times? You don't even realize, he says, I am before you. I am... I, the Messiah, am standing before you and speaking to you, and you don't even know this. In other words, the day of their visitation had arrived, and they didn't understand that it arrived. 
You know, Scripture speaks this way about Jesus' ministry on another occasion when he condemned Israel because they did not recognize the day of their visitation. Turn with me to Luke chapter 19, which is really, in in certain respects, a cross-reference Luke's version to Matthew's account here. Turn to Luke 19. Look at verses 44 through 48. This is when Jesus comes to the holy city, I mean the city of Jerusalem. Verse 41, And when he approached, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes, for the days shall come upon you when your enemies will throw up a bank before you and surround you and hem you in on every side and will level you to the ground and your children within you and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Jesus was predicting the Roman armies coming and laying siege to Jerusalem in 70 A.D. that would devastate Jerusalem. And Jesus says, you know why it's coming? You did not recognize the day of your visitation. In other words, you didn't understand the signs of the times. You didn't understand that I, the Messiah, have arrived. So it is indeed a tragic thing when men abandon the sign of God's ordaining in order to want signs of their own choices in conformity with their own corrupt desires. You know, to show you uh, how the Old Testament showed how corrupt Israel was when, when they should have known better, turn to Jeremiah chapter 8. Take a look at Jeremiah 8, verses 4 through 10. And you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord, Do men fall and not get up again? Does one turn away and not repent? Why then has this people, Jerusalem, turned away in continual apostasy? They hold fast to deceit. They refuse to return. I have listened and heard. I have spoken what is not right. No man repented of his wickedness, saying, What have I done? Everyone turned to his own course, like a horse charging into the battle. Even the stork in the sky knows her seasons, and the turtle dove and the swift and the thrush observe the time of their migration. But my people... Do not know the ordinance of the Lord. How can you say we are wise? And the law of the Lord is with us. But behold, the lying pen of the scribes has made it into a lie. The wise men are put to shame. They are dismayed and caught. Behold, they have rejected the word of the Lord. And what kind of wisdom do they have? Therefore, I will give their wives to others, their fields to new owners, because from the least even to the greatest, everyone is greedy for great gain. From the prophet even to the priest, everyone practices deceit. 
that was an adulterous, evil generation in the time of Jeremiah, and it was exactly the same spiritual condition that Jesus was referencing that was existing during his time that he said about the Pharisees and Sadducees, you, just like your forefathers, you're an evil, adulterous generation. And he says the only sign that's going to be given to you will be the sign of Jonah. Well, what sign was that was given to Jonah? Well, turn over to Luke 11, and let's see the sign that was given to Jonah. Luke 11, 19, uh, Luke 11, 29 through verse 32. And the crowds were increasing, and he began to say, This generation is wicked generation. It seeks for a sign, and yet no sign shall be given to it but the sign of Jonah. For just as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so shall the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South shall rise up and the men of this generation at the judgment and condemn them because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh shall stand up with this generation at the judgment and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So one of the part of the sign of Jonah was the fact that Jonah came preaching, repent or perish. And guess what? They repented. They repented at the preaching of Jonah. Now, how did John the Baptist and Jesus come preaching the Scripture say? They came saying, repent and believe. They came to their generation saying the same thing that Jonah did to the Ninevites. Well, not only did the preaching of Jonah serve as a sign... But also, if you take a look, turn over to Matthew 12, look at verses 39 and 41. There's another part of the sign of Jonah that's, that's vital here. Matthew 12, verses 39 to 41. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign shall be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. And just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the, of the sea monster, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh shall stand up with the genera- this generation at the judgment and shall condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So the sign then of Jonah had to do with the necessity of the people to respond to the preaching of the prophet lest they be swept away in judgment. Something greater, Jesus says, is here than Jonah. In other words, the Messiah, the greatest prophet of all, the one that Moses had prophesied, had come. 
He is here, and you have failed to see it. You have failed to see the greatest sign ever given. And you should have seen it. You have failed to embrace the Messiah. You have failed to recognize the day of your visitation. Therefore, the judgment shall come upon you in Jerusalem, which was a horrifying judgment. And then you're going to end up in hell, just like the rich man that we saw in Luke 16. So what's the purpose of preaching? To drive men to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. That's the purpose of preaching. What was the purpose of the signs? Even in here, the signs were always, we've mentioned this before, signs of God, miracles of God, are not ends in themselves. They are designed to draw attention to the preaching. Jesus did these miracles so that they would listen to what he had to say. Peter and Paul, all the apostles, did miracles in order to get people's attention to listen to the preaching. It's all about the preaching. It's not the signs. It's the signs that point to the preaching. And people need to pay attention. So whenever people hear godly preaching, calling them to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, Whenever they hear it, don't respond. You know what's happened? They have failed to recognize the day of God's visitation upon them. Because God has visited them. Remember, we have said this before, how Romans 10 brings out uh, how it views the preaching of preachers and why the preaching of preachers preachers is so powerful. It's because Jesus preaches through his preachers. That's why the Bible says, how beautiful are the feet of those who come with bringing tidings of good things, which is the gospel. That's what the gospel means, good tidings. Why are the feet beautiful? Because they are bringing the message. God, Jesus, is visiting men with the preaching of his preachers. So the sign of Jonah involved here was the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, just as Jonah was in the belly of the great fish three days and three nights, so will the Son of Man be in the earth three days and three nights. You know what the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ does? If you turn over to Romans chapter 1, look at verse 5, it tells us. Romans 1 verse 5. Well, actually, it's, it's more verse 4. And we need to actually might as well back up to verse 1 because it's all one sentence. So Romans 1, 1 and following. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was born of a seed of David, according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, 
Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake. You see, the important thing here is that the resurrection of Jesus did not make Jesus the Son of God. He was already the Son of God when he was incarnated. The resurrection of Jesus declared him to be the Son of God with power. That's what the resurrection did. So when Jesus said to to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, You want this sign from heaven. No, you really don't want a sign. But here's the only sign I'm going to give you. sign of Jonah. Who preached to you. And whose whose ministry or whose life in his ministry depicted was a type of Christ. And so when Jonah preached... People repented and believed. When I preached, you should have believed. But you haven't. And so when it talks about uh, declared with power to be the Son of God, if you you turn over to the book of Acts, take a look at Acts chapter 2, look at verses 29 through 36. Acts 2, beginning at verse 29. Now this is Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost to a crowd of whom many had cried out for Barabbas rather than Jesus when Pilate offered them a choice. Here's what Peter prays. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and and his tomb is with us to this day. And so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants upon his throne, he looked ahead and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to hell nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised again, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear, for it was not David who ascended to heaven, but he himself says, The Lord has said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand, until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. Therefore, Let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Well, there you have it. Here you have Peter preaching to a generation. And he says, let me tell you something about David. David prophesied that one day a seed of his, a physical descendant, would sit on his throne. Well, guess what? What was David actually prophesying? Jesus, Jesus. Now what had happened on the day of Pentecost? A sign from heaven. What sign was that? Tongues coming down as flames of fire upon the disciples so that they all began to speak in different dialects. So everybody that had been gathered there to hear at the day of the, the Passover heard the gospel in their own dialect. That's a sign from heaven. God gave you a sign from heaven to which demonstrates that Jesus is sitting on the right hand of the Father. And the reason 
all of this has happened is he's fulfilling prophecy. And that's when the people cried out, what must we do? And he says, well, repent. Well, guess what? That's what all signs from heaven are designed to do. Was to, to bring out preaching designed to call people to repentance and faith. And so he, in this regard, Jesus says to disciples, now beware of something. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the, and the Sadducees. Now, at first, we're back to our text here in Matthew 16. At first, the disciples, they don't understand what he's, he's think, they're thinking. He's talking about physical bread. He says, now, guys, have you not learned anything? <laughs> he says, it's never been about physical food. Now, I, I, I didn't go over a particular text earlier I mean you'll notice skip the section of the, the, the feeding of the 4,000 you know we always talk about the feeding of the 5,000 he fed the 5,000 but he also fed 4,000 he had 5 bre- uh, loaves of bread that he fed the 5,000 uh, but here it says he fed the 4,000 with 7 loaves of bread and but Jesus is saying like here in, in Matthew 16 11, how is it that you do not understand? I did not speak to you concerning bread. It was never about bread. But beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. By the way, you know, this whole context of Jesus feeding all these thousands of people, it's John is the one in his gospel account that gives the incident of Jesus getting in this prolonged discussion about he is the real bread of life come down from heaven. Just as the manna came down from heaven and fed Israel, he says, I am the bread of life, and you've got to feed upon me, and if you don't eat of my flesh, you have no part of me. They didn't understand he was speaking metaphorically. They thought he was speaking, you know, in a very rigid, literal sense that he was talking about cannibalism. And he says, no, I'm the bread of life. I'm the fountain of life. You've got to eat of my flesh. You've got to drink of my blood. And all who do so will receive eternal life. In John 6, he made it clear it had to do with believing in him. That's what it meant. Now, what was the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees? Well, works righteousness, that's the leaven. Trying to, uh, and that's where, by the way, that's where virtually all non-Christians are at who have had some kind of Christian background. Because if you were to ask the average person on the street, how do you get to heaven? They're going to tell you, well, if your good works outweigh your bad works. That's what they're going to tell you. Well, all that is is the leaven of the Pharisees. That's what that is. The leaven of the Pharisees. Works righteousness. And then also the leaven of the Pharisees is the exalting of human tradition above the Word of God that invalidates the Word of God. So any addition to or subtraction from the Word of God is a leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And of course, 
you have those people, the leaven of the Sadducees is, this is all that we have. This is it. Grab all the gusto that you can in this life. Because when you die, it's over. So you might as well live how you want to live. You know, the sad thing here is, there's a lot of people that take that to its logical conclusion. That's very scary. Because if there is no life after death, if there is no judgment day, what do any of us have to fear about anything? Nothing. I don't care if you've killed a hundred million people. What is there to fear? If there's no judgment day, nothing. That's scary, isn't it? Beware of the false doctrines. That is the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And he says, I'm the real bread of life. He says that the, the real sign that God has given is that he has sent his son into this world by a virgin birth, that's a miracle, to take upon himself a human nature, the, the wedding of God with man in one person with distinct natures, that's a miracle. And Jesus says, that was prophesied to you where? In the scriptures. All of this was prophesied. Ah, you don't need a sign, a miraculous sign. You've got the Bible that tells you so. And since you've got the Bible that tells you so, all of us are under obligation to believe. And we and, and we don't when men tell us, well, I want some more proof and say, look. The fact that I'm here telling you these things is enough proof for you. Well, I want someone rising from the dead. Look, it didn't work. There in Luke 16, Jesus says, even if someone rises from the dead, it's not going to be enough. If a person's heart is in bondage to sin, it's in bondage to sin. It's in bondage to the devil. What they need is an amazing act of God to free them from that bondage. So, we don't go looking for signs. The sign has already come, and that's Jesus. Wicked men look for signs to cater to their evil desires, but not Christians. Let's pray.